You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to Generations. I'm TJ Newton. And I'm Michael Callahan. Today we are talking about previews and opening nights in theater. We are so excited to chat with three amazing guests that we have, all from different generations and all with incredible careers. Let's jump right in and have you introduce yourselves. My name is Ashley Blanchett. I am a friend of TJ's. We did a show together very recently, and I'm an actor. Hello, my name is Zach Booth. I'm a New York-based actor who's worked on stage here in New York in film and television for the last ooh, almost 20 years. And I also am a friend of TJ's. I'm very happy to be here. Hi, I'm Bobby Day. I'm a friend of Michael Callahan's. We work together. <clears throat> Actor, singer, songwriter. I've been in New York for a little of years and um, just enjoy the work. And I enjoy doing something like this. And let's go. We have all been part of the preview process, whether opening a new show out of town, doing a regional gig where you only get one or two previews, or opening a new show on Broadway. What is one preview process that has really stuck out to you in your career? One of the most interesting parts about previews is the fact that you actually are changing things in real time, especially on a brand new production. I think it's the most dramatic of times. And I, when I was doing a beautiful The Carol King musical, it was I want to I want to tell you that it was bad out of town. It was it was not a good show, and we were all sure that we were we were like, well, it's a Broadway credit. We'll do it for a few months, and then that'll be it. I'll appreciate it. And while we were sort of working on it out of town the the creative team was actually really clever at like listening to where the audience kind of liked it and then stopped and then they we we would change starting from there and then they kind of were like okay then they stopped liking it here and they and they really made adjustments and were really like cueing into what and they weren't afraid to change things which i think a lot of times they don't know what to change or how to change or they don't want to, their, the writers are kind of like, but I like my piece the way it is. It was kind of nice that everybody was humble enough to be like, let's just mess with this and change that. And then by the time we got to New York, I remember one of the swings came backstage one day and they were like, you know, there's a line around the block for this piece of crap. Like we were like, no, like it's terrible. Like, and we didn't realize that it had gotten to a place where it, it became a hit. And we still thought we were in this terrible show. So I think that over overall, I can say about previews, it can be a really exciting, scary time because you never know like what you're, you know, they might give you a brand new song, brand new lyrics for that night. But it is a time when you really are deciding what this piece is going to be. And I think that that can be one of the most thrilling experiences in, in being a, a theatrical performer. I love Beautiful the Carol King musical. I'm so glad it's not a piece of crap anymore. <laughs> it was so bad in the first reading, actually, that Carol King came like with sunglasses and was like, mm. and she she walked out it like in the middle of it and was like, I will never do this. Like this is horrible. And her daughter convinced her. She was like, no, give him a chance. Like this is really going to be great. Like, and she calmed her down. And so Carol was like, great, but I'm not part of the process. I'm not going to be there. And she actually didn't come to see the show on Broadway until like multiple famous people were like, it's okay. You can go see it. It's not awful. But, but originally, yeah, she walked right out. She was like, this is not, 
good. Not my life. <laughs> I've had a couple of experiences with new shows, but one of the things that I'm doing now, like Moulin Rouge, just to come back, starting up with a show that's already been running, but after the pandemic, we started up. And that's when I joined the show. And we were going through previews during that time. And it wasn't a thing about the show at that point. It was like, how do we navigate this terrain now with the with the, the mask, with people being vaccinated? There was a kiss in the show. So how, how do we now re-choreograph all of this where the intimacy had to had to take a, a, a back seat? Hey, I just want to respond to parts of this conversation because I, I really think it's interesting. Could you describe both of those musicals as jukebox musicals? See, I was in Smokey Joe's Cafe, which was mm-hmm. like one of the original jukebox musicals. It was written that way. Moulin Rouge is, yeah, it has all those songs, but it is based off of the movie itself. It already had its own format from the movie. It wasn't being created as a jukebox musical. I just respect those shows so much when they're as good as they are, because I'm like, if, if you're, if your starting point is we got to get to this song, like for, if we got to get to respect and then you got to like build a whole story to get there and then it comes out and it's really good. My mind is blown. I can tell you when we started, uh, Smokey Joe's Cafe, we started at the Doolittle Theater in uh, Los Angeles and we had this gem of all these great songs, but that was really one of the first jukebox musicals that was coming to New York. So they weren't really sure what was going to happen. People say, oh, six months, it's going to be closed. Five years later, it was still running and it became a hit. Mm-hmm. But to watch Jerry Zach's, uh navigate through what songs to use, I mean, and seeing things being taken out because you, you had to make a kind of a living moment to moment story with this, you know, musical. And it worked. There wasn't a book. It was just these songs. You you base those kind of shows, I think, off of a rhythm. You know, the, you know how you build up the rhythm of the you know fast songs here, slower songs here. What's going to be more exciting? I feel like the preview process is really when everybody starts to hone in on what the story is that's actually being told. You use the rehearsal process to try to honor whatever script exists and and to try to build with the director's guidance and the playwright's guidance. But it's really not until you get butts in the seats till you have that other character in the play sort of responding to what you're doing that you really start to understand how your story is being received. And I've been a part of plays before where we got to those first couple previews and we're like, oh, they're not hearing the story that we think we're telling. And there's there's room for some major shifts. I think for me, like the most memorable preview experience was I, I was doing a, a really cool play at Playwrights Horizons and my character was air quotes straight and I had a relationship with a woman and we had a baby and I also had a relationship with her brother, but that relationship was really like hinted at and and was never shown or expressed in the play or on stage and at one point in the second or third week of previews the playwright and the director were having this very intense conversation and he said well i i just think i think if we do this we do this and then then we'll have them kiss and so they were going back and forth about how they were going to show that there was this relationship between the two men and then they turned to me and they were like well does that work for you guys and i was like dude i don't know and so i think previews it feels like the wild west it's just like there's no law. You can try anything you want. You have no idea if it's going to work. You have to really be prepared to fall flat on your face. 
Can you all talk about the mental space you're in during the preview process? You know, on the fly, you're given new songs, new pages, and you're expected to be prepared to perform them that evening. What is your process like when you're handling that situation? And what kind of mental place do you need to be in to be successful in that very specific and very intense environment? There's a lot of fate involved. I do find it empowering. I don't know. I'm such an anxious person. And I don't think I have stage fright, but I certainly have perfectionism. Somehow the preview process allows me to let go of all of that. Or not Mm -hmm. all of it, but a good chunk of it. And I don't know why it's like the magic of, of what we do. But I have had like Edward Albee hand me a new entire page monologue. And I, I don't know if it was the night before. It was within 48 hours, let's say, that it had to be spoken. I just went for it. I do feel like I get frustrated when I feel like the process isn't preparing us properly. Like, I, I did a play, and there was a final scene in the play, and we we never actually staged it in tech by the time we got the first preview. So I just sort of had to walk out the door into the living room. Oh, and there are all these, like, emotional loaded beats and all this. You know, I had to read the book and then look longingly up at the sky, you know, that kind of stuff. And it was just like, choose your own adventure. But again, I did feel sort of empowered and inspired by it. So I don't know. I really feel like the whatever I carry every day that makes it hard for me to take risks, somehow it just evaporates. I don't know if it's there's an audience present. I don't know if it's because I'm doing what I love to do. But somehow that preview process really uh, takes a lot of the internal governors off. And I feel like I'm, I'm my best. I feel like there's a little bit of an excuse. If you just got the pages that afternoon, there's a little bit of like a, yeah, whatever you do with this, we appreciate. You know what I mean? And so I, I think, I think there is a little bit of like, I have an excuse here if I, if I mess this up. So it is what it is. I'll just do my best to a certain extent, depending on your creative team and what their vibe is. I really think people don't realize how exciting and stressful the preview process is on Broadway. I mean, Ashley, you already spoke a little bit about Beautiful, but I'm curious, do you have other shows that really surprised you in the massive change that happened throughout the preview process? Oh, sure. Yeah. Andy Blankenbuehler likes to change things like in a big way. Like he'll just be like, forget that number. I got a whole new number for you today. And then we'll be rehearsing it in the afternoon. And for some reason, like the set's not, we haven't finished it tech wise or something like that. So it'll be like, okay, remember everything we did this afternoon. We're going to go back to the original way we did it tonight. And then tomorrow we'll put this in. So you're trying to remember the two different things at the same time. And Andy will be like, do what you did, but can you come in from the other side? And can you come in backwards? And you know, face the upstage left corner and just do it. Like, I just want to see it. And he sort of does that the whole rehearsal process. So you kind of are starting to get used to being able to be like, all right, it's backwards and it's left. But that being said, yeah, I I have been part of like original shows like and Frozen too, where like, you know, the number that you're doing that night is something that you learned yesterday afternoon. And it's a completely different number. And it's or it's it's slightly different and you have to remember these these little differences. And sometimes people will write things down, like even on their arm or on a piece of paper or whatever, so that like, you know, I'm saying on your arm, like if it's lyric changes or something like that, where it's just the most last minute thing that you're trying to just be like, okay, I cannot forget these 
very intricate changes, but the set is going to do something totally different. So I really can't mess this up because, you know, you could, you could get hurt because it's the set is changing around you in a different way than it was uh, yesterday. I remember the show we just did together during previews. They give you new lyrics. And luckily, you were a businesswoman. So you were always carrying around like a briefcase or a folder. And I remember you putting the new lyrics up on the prop so you could remember better. But yeah, you're right. You're right. I did write it down in a piece of paper. I Now I'm remembering that. I got that from Casey Levy because when Casey got new lyrics for Frozen, she had written them down like on her arm because she was like, there's no way I'm going to like, I'm just too nervous. And I think I was like, I'm going to write it down on this piece of paper so that right before I go out, I can at least review like these lyrics are now different than they were yesterday. You're so right. I forgot about that. (laughs) I've seen people put lyrics on the back of set pieces. So as they're like crossing behind, they get a peek at what the next lyric is and then they pop around and continue on with whatever the scene was or whatever the song was. It's I I think that is hilarious. When you walk by Playwrights Horizons on 42nd Street, if you look at the glass, like the big window they have there, there are these giant televisions that display what's coming next, that sort of thing. Those first arrived in 2011, 2012, and somebody can fact check and deny, deny, but I'm going to tell you how that happened. We were doing that Albi play, and these pages were coming in, that, and these monologues are huge, right? And they're so dense, and they're so beautiful, but they're huge. And this was documented on page six. Elizabeth Ashley, who was starring in the show, was, I, I believe, 72 at the time. Brilliant 72. And was having a hard time getting these like two page things into her brain in 24 hours. So at one point they decided that they were going to put a large television in the back of the house at Playwrights Horizons so that she could see the lines. And then Michael Riedel like came for her and then she came back for him and he, bless him, he published her response letter in the, in the post or whatever it is. She said she was going to take him out to the woodshed. And she said, like, the lips are real, the boobs are real, and so what if I'm reading the lines off the back of the room? (laughs) That television, at the end of the production, was then moved to the front of the theater to show advertisements for the next production. And it was all because of the preview process. And also, in that play, there was this beautiful scene that was played by Brian Murray and Preston Sadler that we called You're a Rock. It was Brian imparting some wisdom about identity onto Preston, who was struggling in this moment with being an identical twin. And it just was a gorgeous, gorgeous scene. And they cut it from the play in previews. And everyone was so gutted. And maybe it, you know, it didn't fit. Maybe it didn't serve the momentum of the piece. Maybe for the entire play, it wasn't right. But to think that there, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever had the experience of seeing live, of hearing, of reading, and to think that in the preview process, they just decided to to cut it out. That's part of it. That's part of the preview process. Sometimes you lose these things that seem so valuable, and now that scene will never be seen. Being a part of several different preview processes, I'm wondering if you think there are any ways to improve the preview process from the creative standpoint. It really depends on, you know, because some people have great memories. Some people can function that way. I think you have to, you know, know who you're dealing with as far as the actor is concerned and really, you know, take the time. I, I'm one of those people. I cannot just 
learn something right there in front of you. I have to take it, take it back with me, absorb it, and then come back. You know, some people can just do it right on the spot. I think you just really have to know who you're working with. I can say from having witnessed the creative side of the preview process, the most difficult part is coming to terms with cutting or editing material that you're really proud of or that you've invested so much time in creating. I can say most recently, coming back from COVID with Aladdin, we did change choreo, we did change dialogue, we did change scenes. It was really interesting watching what people were and were not comfortable giving up and why. I've not personally written or choreographed anything that's gotten to that level of success, but it is really hard at that point to invest so much time and energy into something that is then told in an instant it needs to be changed in a massive way or you know within a matter of minutes something you've spent years working on is cut a lot of times it takes them that time because you see when a tour goes out all of a sudden <laughs> the broadway yeah. company is changing because they say oh well we found this works better i think it might be what my heart is saying right now is that the conversation I want to have about the preview process is not really with the creatives, air quotes again, in terms of uh, writer, director, choreographer, designer. The conversation I think that I want to have is is with the actor and to question whether or not that part of the process is really, again, air quotes for them. And I think that as actors, because of the position we have, which is that we are on the stage and often with amplification, there is always this sense that the focus is on us and that the work is for us to do. And I think that that's really true. And I, I, I don't think we get nearly enough time to do the work that we need to do. So that's not what I'm saying. But often it's helpful for me to remember in that preview process that if something is not working for me, to remember to leave space for everybody else to do the work that they need to do. Because we are all collaborating together. And I do think that there is there is a way to take space, hold space, command space that we as actors have, and that maybe designers or other parts of the collaborative process don't have that comfortability, speaking up in those moments, whatever it is. I just think it's important for us to remember that that, that time is for everybody. It is not just for us. It is that type of process, too, where you have to be willing to change and, and go with change. I, I also remember in Smokey Joe's Cafe, for the longest, they were trying to get, they wanted Brenda Braxton to uh, sing Is That All There Is. I don't know if that was one of, you know, Jerry's favorite songs, but he kept, he kept, he was trying and trying. It just was not working in the show. And then all of a sudden, they just threw Don Juan at her and boom, that became like her signature number. I'm sorry. I'm trying to process that Don Juan was not the original choice because it is such an iconic number from that show. They kept going and going and going, and it just was not what that is. It really is so wild to see how much can change during the preview process to opening night. Michael, you were part of the reopening of Broadway post-lockdown. I mean, I can tell you the the reopening of Aladdin on Broadway was a nightmare. Unfortunately, we had quite the COVID outbreak during our dress rehearsal, our final dress rehearsal, final preview. And I think opening night, we had like eight people out of the show. And I jumped into a track that I had never done at everyone else. And everyone did an amazing job. And I mean, it it was one of those nights where we're like, we're so glad to be open. And then the next day we closed for 10 days because of COVID. <laughs> oh. We were sitting in the new AM. We're all sitting like 10 seats apart because we knew that there was a COVID outbreak. 
everyone was going into the room on the side, getting their tests. And you, so we all were watching each other come out of the room. And if someone came out with their head down and their bags, they were going home because they had COVID. And literally we were watching them come out and it was like one, three. And we're all sitting like looking at each other from a distance being like, Oh my God. <laughs> like just watching them drop. It was a scary time on Broadway. It was. Yeah. I'm laughing about it now. It was terrifying in the moment for sure. It was awful. We, you just would walk into work and look around and be like, well, who's here? Who's not here? What are we doing tonight? Oh, who are you? Oh, you're in the show now? That's incredible. Congratulations. Welcome to the team. I was so, so fortunate to have a job coming out of the pandemic. And I was going into this. We were supposed to be the third replacement cast for To Kill Mockingbird. And we were supposed to start rehearsals like the Monday after everything shut down. And thank them all. They took their government money and, and reopened us in the fall or whenever it was. And so I had a job and I was so excited. But there was no... Well, there was no preview, right? Because the show had already opened and they decided, I mean, I can't imagine why <laughs> money, they decided not to have an opening for us. And they were just like, well, you know, it's this time. It's the, it's COVID. It's the time. It's just too dangerous. There's like, too much going on. We really can't risk it. So we're just not going to do anything. And like, we couldn't, it's too cold to be outdoors and da, 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 da. Like cut to a week later and Andrew Lloyd Webber is literally like coming out of the street, like DJing a street party for Phantom around the corner at the Schubert. Like, excuse, excuse, excuse us. Like, wh why couldn't Atticus be DJing? Like, Aaron Sorkin <laughs> didn't want to do a laser show? It was so weird. Everyone was making up their own rules. Everyone was trying to save $5 and blame it on something else. And I'm not bitter <laughs> at all. But I'm wondering about opening nights. Do you read reviews? What's your process with that? Elizabeth Ashley told me, I read every review so I know when to look for a job. And so I thought... At that point, I, I wasn't into reading a lot of reviews, but I went home from a show and I was had a fun little opening party and I had my pint of ice cream and I was in my bed and I was feeling great. Like, yeah, here we are. And then we opened this play and I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll just I'll just dabble. I'll just take it. And I looked up, you know, I Googled the play. I mean, how many times have I Googled the name of the play and the New York Times review? And it wasn't the Times. For some reason, I maybe I hadn't put that in. But the first thing that popped up, and I just saw a word, and I didn't know what that word meant. So <laughs> I went over like to the, the Google Dictionary, and I, I just Googled the word slog, which I don't know if anybody knows that word. It doesn't sound great, but I was so naive. I was like, oh, I wonder what a slog is. And I Googled slog, and then I, in a second, I understood my fate. Oh. <laughs> that's not good a sl i think it said a slow trudge through the mud and i was like yeah that's doesn't mean they liked it and uh, <laughs> and then i had like a you know five minute little panic and then i went to sleep i do not read reviews at all ever never no recently i was doing something where my my dad was like you're getting great reviews for this or whatever and i was just like nope i don't even want to know because for me, it's like, even if they're good, they'll talk specifically about whatever specific thing. And then especially if you're doing that show, how are you supposed to not be in your head when that moment happens? Like, oh, they said I was funny or oh, they said, you know, they like this aspect of my character. It's like I'm trying my best to get out of my head and be present in the moment and, you know, like honestly relive this every night. And so the more that I'm thinking about 
the mechanics of it or, or what somebody thinks about it. Or that's also another reason why I don't particularly like to know if somebody's in the audience. I prefer to like for you to tell me afterwards because I'll spend the entire show being like, what do they think about this moment? What do they think about this? And I picture the whole show in terms of what my person in the audience is thinking. If the ruse are bad, then I'll remember them for the rest of my life and be doing the rest of my life based on that bad review and what that one person thought. And if they're good, then I'll be judging the whole performance still based on that. So personally, I just try to be like, if I do want to read them, I'll read them years later and be like, oh, that was a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, the one negative review I got while I was on the road is going to be forever ingrained in my mind until I die. (laughs) But luckily, it wasn't anything to do with talent. It was just like he didn't like the way I squinted my eyes and I squint my eyes when I smile. It's just like a natural thing. And he didn't like that. But I think about it all the time now. Why is that person's opinion any more valid than any random person's opinion? It can stay with you for the rest of your life. So to me, it's like, it's not worth. And plus you've seen shows with good reviews that have closed quickly and shows with bad reviews that have gone on forever. What you said about audience, I never contacts on stage because I don't want to see the audience. I never want to see their faces. I don't like that distraction. I like to keep everything right in the proscenium. Bobby, you bring something up really interesting about reviews and that they don't carry the same weight that they used to. And now because of social media, everyone can make their own review and get it out to the world. Even if you want to avoid it, I feel like you could open Twitter and there's someone ranting or praising about the show that you're in or the performance you're giving. Yeah, somebody posted an Instagram of me doing Elsa during the pandemic. And then there were all these comments. And there was one comment that was like, why is she screaming? And I was like, oh, my. And of course, I'll never forget it. But like, I wasn't looking for that. It's not like I was on the boards being like, what do people think of my Elsa? It just it just came out and hit me in the face. And now I'll always have that. So thank you, whoever you are out there. I'll never forget you. I don't think anybody's going to critique me worse than I can critique myself. That's why, I mean, I, when I was on Star Search, my parents have all of it. I don't look back at all of I don't have videos. If you come to my house, there's nothing that says I'm in show business except my piano because I just want to be in my moment now. And I just don't like hearing what other people have to say, because if I do something wrong, I already know it. You know, if I mess up, I knew it before you wrote it. I'm the same way. I I don't necessarily remember reviews, but I remember that one show where I cracked or that one show where I fell off my leg doing a turn and I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what city I was in. Um, Sometimes I remember exactly what day of the week it was. Yeah, that sticks with me a lot more than a specific review does. And Bobby, I just want to clarify that I understood. You do not have show posters in your home. Is that right? Nope. It's my job. I mean, you know, and I enjoy my job, but I don't want to have it 24-7. I do like the mementos of the show in some capacity. Maybe not the show poster, maybe not like a picture of me, but like, you know, some little thing because we go through so many of these heart moments where we're where we're creating something where we're getting really close to people where we're feeling very intimate and then it's just gone and it's it's nice to have some memory of of you know the the ones that are especially meaningful because you, that becomes your family and that becomes like you know something really 
meaningful to you and then it's gone and it, and, and you're never going to have it again. How do I make sure that I have some little piece of that that, you know, reminds me of that of that time in my life because it com- it comes and it goes and you know these families come and they go. Lucky for us then that for opening nights people have decided that the best thing to do was just slap the name on the show on every tiny piece of plastic merchandise they can find and hand it out. So hopefully you do have a lot of opening night tchotchkes. That's the thing that I really don't understand. I mean, it's I love a gift. I love giving a gift. But, <laughs> like, it just, it's such a strange phenomenon. Like, we spend weeks and weeks and months and years sometimes building these incredible pieces of art. And we put so much into them. And then it's like, all right, well, we're going to open. Here's a pen with the name of the show on it. Here's a tote bag. You probably don't have any of these. The best thing that producers give me, for me, myself, I don't know about everybody, just give me, when I get those gift cards, yeah, I can do whatever I want with that. There it <laughs> oh, is. come on, Bobby. You don't have a Smokey Joe's bathrobe. In a box somewhere. Most of the my souvenir, my parents have. You know, it's been shipped down to their house because they enjoy it more than I do. One little momentum I have, and I've done this ever since I was a little kid, I always get a signed playbill by the entire cast. Whether that was in high school or, you know, working professionally, I always have a signed playbill from everyone. And that's my little momentum that I take. Don't give me a poster because I don't have any more wall space. I'm way too lazy to get everyone's <laughs> See, this is why Bobby and I get along, because we have the same mindset about this. I'm just trying to get ready for the show. I don't have time to go to everyone's dressing room and ask for signatures at half hour. And then my OCD kicks in if I don't have everyone's signature on the playbill, and it drives me nuts. So I've got to get everyone. No, I get it. It's, it is why we are co-hosts. So the excitement of opening night happens. You finally have the show frozen. How do you handle the second day blues or, you know, even maybe the second week blues might be a little bit more realistic? And you've got 11 months left on your contract. Maybe everybody can speak to the blues a little better, but I feel like that is a time that you're looking forward to because during previews, you're like, oh my God, like, you know, life is crazy. I am so focused on this show and I can't do anything else but the show. And I'm worried about all this stress of like opening night and all this stuff. And once it's open, creative team is gone you know you can finally settle in you can start thinking about your real your full life as a human being now i can clean my bathroom you know now i can like (laughs) you know do all these other things that were on hold and i can sort of relax in this piece now and think about myself as a as a human again I'm so bad for this question because in my long storied career i've only Mm -hmm. ever been in one commercial production and that production was cut short i haven't ever been in a show where i have like an 11 month contract left i haven't ever done that i understand that uh in in musical theater there are a lot more elements at play in terms of quote freezing a show right um choreography and all all of that and a lot of times the sets are much larger and more dangerous so i will say that i don't believe in freezing I obviously believe in safety, and so I will always make sure that if something relates to safety, I will always make sure to do it the exact same way. But in terms of how I live and breathe and inhabit the characters, uh, I am always looking for sometimes very subtle ways to keep it alive. I think I look at a show once it's open as time to continue to explore 
and to face the challenge of giving the audience a fresh and exciting performance every night. They deserve it just as much as the people who rolled the dice and came to the preview. It is about, for me, keeping the art itself alive, and it's alive every day. I have to say, though, we start off with those previews. We start off with the shows with people that we don't know. We're starting to get to know them. Then we open the show. For me, the most exciting thing is, now let's play backstage. Let me see who I can get to know Mm. and take the life for me is backstage then and then I can take that energy onto the stage with me. I mean, Michael knows, I mean, when we, you know, first, I, as soon as we finished our previews with Aladdin in Chicago, then I had to find a show husband, Charles South. Thank you very much. And then I had to find a show wife. Then it was about finding out who wrote songs and we ended up finding, uh, we did a benefit where everybody in the cast had to write their own original songs. And it was, you know, it's just, you know, start finding activities to make us all enjoy each other as well. Well, theater is all about community and it's about building community and you build that community during the preview process. And then you really settle into your family after opening. And that includes like going out salsa dancing like Ashley and I did after the opening night of our show. And that's what I think makes the whole experience so fun. You know, this actually is a great way to end this episode because what I don't think people realize is that the second the show is open, it is go time for understudies and standbys. You know, they're jumping deeper into rehearsal at this point to make sure that they're prepared for whenever they need to jump into the show. And for a lot of the cast, opening night is just the beginning of a huge part of their process. And it's just a reminder that theater is a living, breathing organism that is always going to be changing. It's going to be different every night. You're going to have understudies on. You're going to have replacements in. You're going to have a new audience. And that's what makes live theater so special. And that's what makes you so special. Thank you, Bobby. Thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Zach. Thanks for stopping by Generations to share your stories. We love you all so much. Please stick around for a post-show discussion with Michael and I. Okay, I love opening nights. I remember when I was in high school and you did the high school musical, we had like one preview night that we perform for the community and then opening night was the next night and of course like nothing really changed during previews but i remember those opening night butterflies and knowing that my parents and all my friends were in the audience and there really is nothing like opening show and you never lose that like i still get giddy on opening nights okay so i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna disagree with you on this I hate opening nights. What? Because I hate that the entire rehearsal process and all this magic you've created, the pressure of it being quote-unquote perfect is on one night. I love when people come and see the third performance. I tell most of my family, don't see opening nights, see the third performance. Because I think the show is sometimes, especially in our younger years, not actually what the show is. It's the show on steroids. I feel bad. I feel like I'm being like a cynical actor about that. But I'm not a fan of opening nights. You know what's so funny? You bring that up. When I got to speak with Laura Bell Bundy, I was talking about how that Legally Blonde MTV recording like raised our generation. And she said, and it's so interesting, she said that performance that she gave was nothing like the performance that she was giving towards the end of her run, that she had like six or seven months left in her contract when that MTV recording was made and that the growth that she made as an actress like over the rest of her run really encapsulated what her version of Elle was and that opening night was a completely different like version of what the show actually was for her. Yes, I agree with Laura. (laughs) 
But at the same time, the energy of seeing an opening night, now that's different. Being in the audience of an opening night, it's a rock concert. Well, I actually love that feeling, but I love going to preview performances too, because usually the energy in the house is electric there as well. Mm -hmm. It's nice during previews because usually you get like theater friends that are there like wanting to support you. I love seeing shows in the preview process too, because the conversation between the the actors and the audience is so raw because you're actively actually trying to see what works and what doesn't. There is no room to not be present. No one's marking during previews. There's no space. I mean, and, and that's what I think that they were talking about, that the preview process can be so exciting, stressful, but exciting because you're constantly just creating. It's creation literally in its like, like <laughs> most raw form. Do you have any opening night nightmare stories or great ones? A couple years ago, I choreographed a production of Fiorello at Berkshire Theatre Group, and then it eventually came to the city, and it ran here um, off-Broadway for two months. It was during the the election year of Trump and Clinton. (laughs) Um, So it was a very topical musical. So they brought someone, you know, produced it to bring it down. And to watch the difference in the way the audience responded in the Berkshires at a Summerstock Theatre versus a New York audience that was probably the most fascinating thing I've ever experienced. Watching things that were forgiven from a Berkshire audience and things that were forgiven by a New York audience and things that also those audiences connected to separately. Um, Well, that's also the interesting thing about playing, about going on tour. Yes. Is audiences that maybe find your show very funny in one city do not find you funny at all in another. Right. And there's also been like, really wonderful surprises. Like when I was doing Spamilton and we went to Sheboygan, Wisconsin, I was like, what is Sheboygan? I've never heard of this place in my life. And it was one of the best audiences, most receptive audiences we've ever had on opening night. So why do you think that was? I wonder if their opportunity to see new live theater is not as high as other cities. Like if you're going to a major city where they're getting like 10 tours a year, I wonder if they are just more willing to like have fun because they don't get this opportunity as much i'm not totally sure cool okay but then sometimes you go to like major like big cities that like love you and then some that are like don't really get the humor yeah so i'm not really sure i think it's just a different in culture to i'm sure the culture affects the way shows are received bobby and i did the tour of aladdin together and um we we put that tour together in chicago and i'll never forget casey nicola had his associates set the show, but Casey came out for about a week and fine-tuned it. And I remember we had this version of the show that we, the actors, thought was hilarious and perfect, and we were so into it. And he came, and he made it, he, in a week, made it a show that audiences across the country would find perfect and hilarious. And there was, I remember there feeling like a separation from us being like, oh, this is not what we thought would be funny. But then realizing all of a sudden, this is what everyone will think will be funny. He's a genius. And to watch him in such a short amount of time recraft that show, you know, he didn't stop us from doing a lot of things we created, but he he doctored it so that it was not actor-specific comedy. It was audience-specific comedy. And that was the most fascinating thing I've ever been able to witness someone do. Well, that's why Casey is such a genius and so well-respected in this business. Because he's able to see the differences between audiences across the country and in New York. Right. And across the world. Yeah. It was a masterclass. And I almost didn't know how he was doing it. I was like, wait, 
what? Do oh yes, yes, of course. Well, we touched base on this at the end of the episode, but it's just a nice reminder that theater is always ever changing, and that you have to be willing to let some of your ego go. You have to be willing to let other artists inspire you in order to put out the best product for an audience. Yeah, we all know what it's like to see a show that is stale. Although that might be comfortable when you've been doing it for a long time, we also know as people who go and see shows that that's never what you want to see when you show up to a theater because. For a lot of people in the audience, it's their first time seeing the show. So even though we might be a, a ten months into our contract, that shouldn't affect the performance that we're giving because most of the audience has never seen this before. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's it like, is. It's why very hard to do. Long runs are very difficult. They are, but it keeps it exciting because there's always an opportunity to like change someone's life. Because like I remember my first Broadway show is such a game changer for me, and like. Knowing that that uh, that show was you know a year and a half into into its run, you never know who you can inspire. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, if you're having a bad day, look in the audience and find the little human who is dressed up as Jasmine or Aladdin or Jafar every once in a while, and remember, it's for them. The show's for them. I always check the audience and see if I can find a little person of color. That's what inspires me. Yeah. Theater's inspiring in general, and I just want to share it with everybody. And there really is nothing like opening a new show. Opening night. What's that from? Producers. Right? Wait, what am I thinking of? Kiss Me Kate. Probably. What's the opening of Kiss Me Kate? Isn't it? There's not, there's no, no, that thinking of. Another opening, another show. In Fairly, Boston, or Baltimore. Ugh, producers, has so an, producers has an opening yep, night. Yeah, it also has an opening night. Cool. Obviously, it's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's singing about it. Cool. I'm really glad that we had the three of them on. And That's wow, cool. I mean, w- w- what an amazing trio of guests with such different backgrounds in theater and such rich backgrounds in theater. Rich. I mean, I'm such a fan of Ashley, and I've known her, and I've been so lucky to work with her. And she's had such a career and Broadway shows I was seeing, you know, when I moved to the city, and she's really inspired me. And Zach is an amazing actor that does straight plays. To see him as the lawyer in To Kill a Mockingbird, I'm like, that's my friend up there? He's scary! Yeah. <laughs> but then we got Bobby, who is an OG. Oh, Oh, my God. Bobby Day has been in the industry for quite some time, and he's been a part of so many amazing musicals that literally are the reason that you and I are doing this now. But I have to say it was really humbling to share a dressing room with him and realize that he is brilliant, he is so talented, but also a fun guy to work with. Like, I cannot name a bad experience I had with him on the road. Well, that's why he works nonstop. Yeah. And I love that he and I don't have show posters in our perfect. <laughs> I, I have, love that I'm not crazy. I have 14. In this, <laughs> I have 14 in this room alone. We are currently sitting in TJ's apartment recording this, and um, he respectfully doesn't share that same mindset, and it's beautiful. I love theater. What can I say? This... And I hate theater. What can I say? <laughs> Just kidding. Thanks for tuning into Generations. Where we came from. Where we are. And where we're going. Tune in next time. Hey, 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 